We're about to get a new president. So, with that and efforts by the people, is it possible that economic justice, which has been out of reach for so long, may actually be worked on? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. As our guest, the Reverend Liz Thea Harris writes, division in the United States of America is not a new phenomenon. In an article in USA Today, Perry Mitchell writes, not much has changed since the Kerner Commission released its report in February 1968. It asserted that the nation was moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. The Kerner Commission, officially known as the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, was established by President Johnson after the 1967 urban riots. The commission concluded that, quote, bad policing practices, a flawed justice system, unscrupulous consumer credit practices, poor or inadequate housing, high unemployment, voter suppression, and other culturally embedded forms of racial discrimination all converged to propel violent upheaval on the streets. But uh, his report continues, President Johnson ignored the conclusions of the commission and did nothing. End of quote. Boy, does that sound familiar, a lot of those attributes. Inequality today is certainly no better than in the turbulent 1960s. Now that the primary proponent of hate and division is being kicked out of the White House, the concern is whether or not President Biden, in a rush to return to some definition of normalcy, will, like President Johnson, ignore the two Americas of which Martin Luther King and author Michael Harrington spoke. Might this be a unique moment of change at the top, also push along toward justice by movements of the people? After all, politics and protest are both necessary, but neither is sufficient by itself. Liz Thea Harris, thanks for being with us once again on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for having me. Your new article on Tom Dispatch is titled The Other America, The New Politics of the Poor in Joe Biden's and Mitch McConnell's USA. She is a returning guest on Keeping Democracy Alive. Reverend Liz Thea Harris is a theologian, ordained minister, and anti-poverty activist, director of the Kairos Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary in New York City and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. She's the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. Well, again, thanks for being back with us. We have not seen street riots as we did in the 1960s. Instead, we are seeing, as you described, a daily ugliness displayed from, quote, a fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily in search of jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. Poverty has remained locked in and largely ignored, end of quote. Well, as history pretty much always does, sanitized myth has been made to stand in the place of uncomfortable reality. The first thing, of course, one thinks about Martin Luther King these days is, oh yes, civil rights leader. But his vision was about so much more. As you and Reverend Barber carry forward the intentionally de-emphasized work of Dr. King, 
not that he de-emphasized it, history has, please tell us about which of his goals have been purposely shunted aside. So I think, um, you know, what, what, what we know from history is that what has changed society is when those that are most impacted uh, come together, band together, and, and organize together with people from all walks of life. And so, indeed, in the last years of his life, Dr. King was talking about the need to move uh, from being a reform movement to a revolutionary movement and, and to see the, the evils of militarism and racism and poverty all inextricably connected and that you can't get rid of one without getting rid of all of them. Uh, so he says that the Achilles heel, the weak point of, of, the, of the whole system, uh, a system that, you know, was uh, killing garbage workers, um, black garbage workers in Memphis, um, a system that was uh, allowing for places like Marks, Mississippi, to have, um, you know, the highest poverty rates across the whole country. Um, he said that the weak point of, of that system was to unite and organize uh, poor people across race and geography into a powerful, you know, in his words, uh, freedom church or nonviolent multi-generational uh, interracial uh, army of the, of the poor. And so I think a bunch of what we're working on today is, is how do you pick up that mantle? How do you continue to organize and unite people across these lines of division? Um, uh, again, in, in, in this country, um, you know, reaching across um, uh, these barriers uh, that have been set up, but, but where uh, poor people can come together, are coming together, and are organizing, you know, uh, for a, a civil and human rights revolution in this in this day and age. Yes, it's no small task, that's for sure. And it's amazing to me how what the Kerner Commission said, bad policing practices, a flawed justice system, on and on and on, voter suppression, it's all right there now, and it hasn't really changed. It's it's remarkable. It's almost, and I, I think some of the uh, the Trumpists celebrate that. They actually like that and want, and are determined to keep it that way, which is, it kind of amazes me how not just it's selfish, of course, but it's it's lacking a vision of how all this affects everybody. And I do remember the Eisenhower fifties as a time of solid large and strong middle class. Of course, it left out people of color. We know that. It was a far cry from the Gilded Age of the 1890s. Are, are we in the 2020s closer to the 1950s or the 1890s in terms of wealth inequality? Well, what we know today is that there are 140 million people who are poor or one fire, one storm, one healthcare crisis, one job loss away from, from deep poverty, right? That's close to 50% of the U.S. population. And this is all from figures before the COVID pandemic and the subsequent economic recession um, has, um, has hit, right? What we know is that in this pandemic, more than 8 million people have fallen below the poverty line. Wow. Um, and that currently what's happening because our, our, uh, our Congress is not passing a just stimulus and, and we is that people are falling into deep poverty every day, just every day. Um, what we've seen also though, 
is that the, the most wealthy in our society and in our world are doing better than they ever have. Um, you know, just in this pandemic alone, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon has become a trillionaire corporation. Um, and the profits just over the last um, uh, months have been $200 billion. Now, if that was distributed amongst the workers, the essential workers that are paid expendable wages and given expendable, um, you know, uh, you know, equipment, um, safety equipment, um, that would be that every Amazon worker could, could have a bonus of a hundred thousand dollars this year. Right. I mean, and it would still preserve the profits, the, the wealth, the great wealth of, of Bezos and, and Amazon. And so, so we are, are, entering a time that is actually unprecedented. Mm. The, the amount of, of wealth amassed by a very few and the, and the spreading of poverty against, uh, uh, amongst very many um, is, is really, um, it is tremendous. And, uh, you know, again, uh, any one of the, the richest people in the world has more wealth than anybody in human history has had before. Um, mm. So this is, and, and if we look over the past 50 years, right, um, 50, 60 years, um, poverty has uh, increased by 60%. Now, part of that is because the population um, uh-huh. increases, right? Mm-hmm. But, but also, uh, we have had a, an actual, you know, war on the poor basically yes. um, uh, enacted. And, and it's, it's left us with, with more poor people today than 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 50 years ago. If we look today at the issue of voting rights, we have fewer mm. voting rights um, than we did 54 years ago, despite people literally giving their lives um, to win those rights. Um, we went through the second election, presidential election, without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And even though there was some conversation and and some talk about voting voter suppression, um, uh, you know, there there isn't the moral outrage at the fact that our democracy is is under attack. Um, Twenty six states have enacted racist voter suppression laws, and that was before again the current um, you know attacks on the post office and 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 mm. and the administration. You know, talking about uh, you know all of these, you know, um, you know all of this all of this other stuff. I mean, but what what's really what's really happening? You know, we. And the Poor People's Campaign reached out to millions of poor and low-income eligible voters, and we we set up voter protection and poll monitoring in hundreds of communities um, where where folks had never seen a poll monitor before, or they hadn't surely um, uh, since um, all of the uh, since the kind of uh, uh, rollback of of voting rights and 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 so again if if we look at these issues and then you and you put in climate change right um, when you put in the fact that uh, 15 million families can't afford water um, in this country the richest country in the world when Nestle gets to you know yeah. um, bottle as much and sell as much water uh, as they want um, and and make a profit of billions and so the 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 kind of vast inequality and the vast suffering that it's happening um, is, is really tremendous. And it, it's going to take a powerful movement of people to be able to right these wrongs and to be able to, 
to transform life for the better for, for everybody. But it is possible because, again, what we have seen in this pandemic at the same time as the richest have gotten richer um, is that, that our government has been able to materialize all kinds of resources to actually solve, solve you know, uh, the problem of, of needing to bail out Wall Street or <laughs> to solve putting in protections so that corporations and governments can't be sued if people die because the administration has failed to curb this virus. And we've seen, you know, uh, folks be able to, you know, come up in, in, in warp speed uh, uh-huh. finding a, a vaccine. Um, uh, so when when we put our resources around um, the real issues of our day, you know, it, 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 it can be done. Um, but, but right now there's a, a scarcity of political will to, to really lift from the bottom and, and have everybody um, prosper in the society. And you talk about uh, morals, you know, it's a national call. You're part of the Poor People's Campaign, which is a national call for moral revival. And the incredible wealth I mean, I just, I don't even understand how, I mean, to me, if you think about it, one billion is a thousand million, and yet Jeff Bezos and others have over a hundred billion dollars, $150 billion. I personally, I question the morality of that. I just, you know, if you can't be satisfied with a hundred million dollars, you got a problem. I'd like to see uh, maybe someday psychiatrists figure out what the heck is wrong with these people. But and democracy obviously is not a spectator sport. It's something that if we're going to have a republic of the people, it has to serve the people. And right now, obviously, lower income people, they're not the ones who fund political campaigns. So you know, there are over 300 million Americans now, uh, and a significant portion of that 320 or so million Americans is basically invisible to them. And the, the lack of, back in the 60s, when it wasn't as bad as it is now in terms of the, uh, the wealth inequality, people were out on the streets quite a bit. And, and it does seem that there's been an effective movement to, to crush people's belief that they have any power, that they don't have any power. What about this invisibility, please? And, you know, it's not just people of color, but largely people of color. What about this uh, portion that's basically invisible and the potential that's there for political movement? So in August, the Poor People's Campaign put out a study um, where we where we looked at the 2016 and the 2018 election um, and said, if poor people, um, low income people, had voted at just even the numbers um, at the percentages that that higher income people voted, it would have transformed um, the election entirely. We would not have had Donald Trump for the past four years, mm. um, and um, and many of the different. Um, uh, seats in in Congress would be um, very different, right? Uh, you know, and again, this isn't this isn't all poor people voting. This is a small uptick. Um, yeah. You know, in a in a state like Michigan, one percent more of poor and low income people voting, um, you know, had the power to to flip that election. Um, you know, in in Florida, I forget if it was four or six percent, but you know, again, this is. Um, this is, you know, a small number, small numbers, um, yes. a small percentages. And, and so 
what, what we were able to show in this report is the power that the key to actually um, uh, shifting the entire political landscape um, electorally and, 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 and broader than that lies in um, poor people coming together and organizing and voting around an agenda together. Um, and, yes. and as there have been, you know, campaign after campaign, you know, where, where the past 50 years, we don't hear about the needs and demands of what is close to half of the U.S. population and what is one third of the electorate, right? Um, at least one third of the electorate is poor and low income. And yet we don't hear the word poverty um, in any of that, let alone um, people coming forward with real solutions that they're going to enact to lift the load of poverty. Um, and yet what we also saw in this last election is, is the place where things shifted, where a victory for Biden Harris happened yes. was because of the turnout of, of poor and low income people. Um, yes. You know, the battleground, you know, states yes. have been the battleground of, of, of all of these different struggles, but that, but it was very clear that, um, that, that there is actually a mandate, right? And that yes. mandate is about health care, it's about living wages, it's about voting rights, it's about police reform, it's about immigration reform, mm -hmm. it's about, you know, lifting from the bottom and, and actually, um, you know, prioritizing the needs of, of, of so many in this, in this rich nation. And, and so I think we have, you know, not heard about these issues. Yeah. People have become kind of disappeared, um, but uh, and, and our, our government has basically, and our politicians have basically uh, sent a message to the people that, um, that, that they have to send for themselves, whether mm. it's for this pandemic or whether it's, it's for the austerity measures that have been um, being enacted over decades, you know, in rural and urban communities across the country. Um, mm. But, but the good news I have to say mm -hmm. is that people are are organizing and are not having it. And again, this is yes. this is what made the difference in this election, and it's yep. um, and it's what we're seeing all across the country in this poor people's campaign and in the work that I do at the Cairo Center. It is absolutely making a difference. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, the Reverend Liz Thea Harris, uh, who's written uh, an article, The Other America, The New Politics of the Poor, in Joe Biden's and Mitch McConnell's USA. And she is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. And one thing I don't think many people realize, what there is a specific poverty level. You know, you talk about in, in free lunches, they're like 150% of the poverty level. When I learned what what it defines the poverty level, poverty income, it's shocking. What What is it? That's right. So for um, for an individual, yes. if you're making more than $12,000 a year, you're a not year. considered poor. Ah. Um, $12,000 a year. And if you're a family of four, if you're making more than $26,000 a year, you're not considered poor, right? Um, there's, there's not a county, a town, a city anywhere in this country, if you're working full time at minimum wage, the federal minimum wage right now, that you can afford to even rent a two bedroom apartment. And, and yet we have a poverty measure, a poverty line that is completely off. Um, and so that's why we in the Poor People's Campaign have been using um, uh, 
the supplemental poverty uh, measure, uh-huh. uh, which is also U.S. Census um, Bureau statistics. Um, but it accounts for, you know, some of the places where there's increased in in uh, in in spending, right? Um, the way of the poverty line was um, come up with it. It happens during the 1960s, and it's about three times a family's food budget. Now, this was at a time it was it was inaccurate then, but it was still a time when food was um, was one of the most expensive things that a family had to you know allocate money for. Um, but today, even though food prices are rising for sure, and they are indeed in this pandemic. Um, uh, to not include health care, to not include housing, to not include transportation, to not include, you know, um, education um, means that you you are not getting an accurate um, picture of, of what you need, what a family needs, what an individual needs to actually, you know, survive in this in this economy and in this country. And yeah. so um, so, so to say to somebody that's making twenty-seven thousand dollars a year for a family of four, four that they're not struggling, um, it's it's just wrong because people are. Um, and and sixty-four million uh, jobs um, before this pandemic were making people were making less than a living wage, right? And what we know is that if we were to 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 you know basically increase the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour immediately, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that would bring you know, that would bring hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy to be circulated immediately, right? Because people would be out there able to buy, you know, a little bit more. Absolutely. Um, That's the way the economy works. So, it's 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 from demand. Yeah. If people have lower income, people have more money in their pocket, they spend it. If you give tax cuts to the super rich, they don't. <laughs> it just kind of sits exactly. there. And the I mean, morality here, I, I mean, my sense of morality, I think it's incredibly immoral, the situation that we have now with so much, so much wealth uh, and a few people and so much poverty and so many people. I I wonder, a Facebook friend, Rose O'Cragley, wrote, if a Biden presidency messages a return to the status quo pre-Trump, it will fail to address the societal problems and the resultant environment that brought America the poison package of Trump. This country has a lot of work to do once Trump has left the Oval Office, end of her quote. I'm not, I'm not without hope for a Biden administration, which is more progressive than Obama's or Clinton's. I think it's possible. Two questions. One, do you see Biden inclined to see and understand the societal problems that you talk about? And two, how can the Biden-Harris administration be helped along in this endeavor if they have such an inclination? So I really appreciate the sentiment from your Facebook um, friend. Uh, I don't know how much uh, people are aware, but we often think about this um, powerful speech that Dr. King gave um, at the March on Washington, and we call it the I Have a Dream speech, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but the real title of that speech and the real message of that speech was normalcy never again, right? Um, huh. and, and that's that's a powerful wow. statement, right? But he was saying back then, um, how things have been working is not working, right? And we can see that even more strongly now, right? That if, um, if we return to yeah. how things were, 
before this pandemic, mm. um, where 140 million people were poor and low income, where you know, uh, 64 million workers were making less than the living wage. They might be now being called essential, but but they don't have mm. the essentials of life, right? Yeah. Um, where where we spend 53 cents of every uh, discretionary dollar uh, on the military and less than 15 cents on healthcare and education and anti-poverty programs combined, right? That, that, that's not normal. We can't return to that. Yes. Um, and and I, um, I feel hopeful that we won't because of the power of people organizing. When the yes. Poor People's Campaign held a, a mass assembly on voter participation and protection, uh, we invited both Donald Trump and Joe Biden to come join us. Donald Trump did not, but Joe surprise. Biden did. And what he uh-huh. said in front of a million people that were gathered hmm. online was that if he's elected, that ending poverty uh, will be his theory of change. Um, and, and we're taking that seriously. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're saying um, if you're going to say that, then we, we assume you meant it and we're going to keep on pushing on it. Right. And, right. and, um, and uh, you know, I think, what, what that means for us is that we have people organized in 43 states across the country mm. um, in coordinating committees. Uh, you know, uh, last Monday, we had caravans in um, 25 different um, state capitals and in Washington, D.C., taking place to mourn the people that we have lost because of COVID, because of, um, you know, in Columbia University and, and other public health uh, professionals say that, that, you know, upwards of 210,000 of the deaths so far uh, were not necessary, mm. that they could have been prevented. But it's really the negligence, it's the irresponsibility, it's the political murder um, on the part of, mm. of, of the administration that has allowed this much suffering. And, and it's, it's, it's not just disproportionate amongst poor people, it's, it's mostly amongst poor people yes. who are getting sick and dying from this. Um, and, and uh, you know, we heard on Monday when we did these caravans about all, you know, a young woman in Mississippi who has lost 11 family members um, to this to this virus. Right. Um, you have, you know, breadwinners that have died. Um, you have families that are destroyed. Right. Um, and, and and many of these folk were already living in the pandemics of racism and poverty before yes. the virus hit. Um Already we had in this country gotten used to the fact that 700 people die a day from poverty and inequality in the richest country in the world. And this is, again, before COVID-19 hit at all. Um, 250,000 people die a year because of poverty and inequality in the richest country in human history. Mm. Um, It doesn't have to be that way. Um, And, uh, you know, poor people, low-income people, people of conscience, um, moral leaders are are organizing and standing up and 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 insisting that um, that when we lift from the bottom, everybody rises, and that um, this this idea of scarcity is a myth. Uh, um, oh, that yes. we have we have the resources. Um, if the Federal Reserve could materialize 1.5 trillion dollars overnight at the beginning of this pandemic, um, uh, we we have the possibility and the power. Um, both through executive orders and through um, the passing of of just legislation, um, to to really uh, um, uh, to really change difference. things for the better. It, yeah. it amazed me how uh, people derided uh, Bernie Sanders as wanting to give away free stuff. Free stuff? 
I mean, <laughs> it, it, the, the military contractors get more free stuff than they know what to do. It's just a question of doing it morally or, in my opinion, immorally. You know, it's, it, do we have a government that, that, you know, is more aggressive now than in the Gilded Age to, to serve the top 1%? Are they even more <laughs> aggressive now to keep it that way? It's, it's amazing to me. One of the most disturbing aspects of the recent election was that some 70 million Americans voted for a second Trump term. The dangerous and often deadly anger from the mainly white rural working class in the so-called flyover states arose from them feeling neglected and overlooked. And I think there's a lot to that. Politicians to them seem to only care about A, the rich, and B, the population centers on the two coasts. I wonder if they, too, a lot of these people who voted for Trump, working class people because they feel overlooked, are they part of what you call the other America as well? And what about the chances for them participating in, you know, this moral campaign? So I think it's really important that we we actually study and understand who um, the base of supporters for Trump is. Um, because I think this, this, this idea that it's poor people, that it's working class people, um, it is, it's, this is not who elected Trump. This is not who voted for Trump. Again, the average, um, uh, the, the, the increase of Trump voters this year um, was people that made more than $100,000 a year. Um, and, and, and yes, there is the reality when we travel across the country and now when we can't travel, but are, are talking to folks in the hollers of Kentucky to the, um, you know, the, the highlands of, of different parts across the country, we, we surely hear that folks um, believe that the political system has failed them, has left them out. Um, and, and yes, there are folks that are voting for Donald Trump because of that desperation. They, they, they've seen that the Democratic Party and, and candidates are not putting right. forward um, uh, solutions to to the problems of poverty, but I think it's also it's it's also a myth that it's poor white people who right. have voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not. It's wealthier white people that have voted for for Trump, and 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 those that that actually gained a lot from Trump's oh. tax cuts are who voted for Trump. <laughs> That's for and sure. and I think um, you know we have a history in this country of of blaming poor people and and trying to pit poor people against each other, mm. and and that is not going to work. Um, uh, that's not going to work for progressive change, but it's, 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 we, we know where that leads. And, Mm -hmm. and indeed the poor people's campaign is organizing, um, is, is mobilizing and is uniting people, poor white people and poor black people and poor Latino people and poor indigenous and native people and poor Asian people, uh, you know, across all of these, these lines. And, and what we're finding is, is, is that there is a, a new, kind of fusion movement of new political alignment happening in this country. Um, but it's, it's, it's what needs to happen. Um, if we look at, at Florida, um, Trump might have, have won in Florida, but what won more than Trump or Biden was living wages. Um, and every single uh, race where folks were running under Medicare for all, um, including very contested races, every single candidate has won their, their, their seat. Um, so I think this idea that, that, that we need moderation and this idea mm-hmm. that, that, um, that poor white people, um, you know, 
uh, are supportive of of this um, this political leader. Um, and I, I think that that that's that isn't going to serve uh-huh. the nation. Uh-huh. Um, and that what what is going to serve is 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 leaders, political leaders coming out around the issues that that really impact people and, and saying no to austerity and yes. making sure that our state budgets um, are are uh, are not cut in the way that they currently are going to, which is going to mean, you know, more rural farmers committing suicide. It's going to be more urban schools having no resources. And, 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 and we see that, that in the places, um, including the places where the electoral college will, will vote for, for Trump, Mm -hmm. there's mostly unorganized uh, communities of, of people, including large numbers of poor people, poor white people, poor black people, poor Latinos, poor indigenous who, who, who have not found a place in this political system, do not see a party that speaks to their needs or issues yeah. and, and don't hear their name or condition in any of our kind of political discourse. But that's where a movement comes in. And, and that's what, what I think is really the only thing that can help save the soul of our democracy and our nation mm. is, to, is to organize and unite um, poor people, including folks that, that um, yeah, they may have you know, wherever people are voting or not voting. Um, but, uh, because again, this is, this is, this is the, the nation that we're living in and, and, uh, um, and, and, and we can do better. Numbers do matter. The uh, candidate who got the most votes has been elected. I know Trump refuses mm-hmm. to believe that, but it's the case. And, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the other America and the new politics of the poor in Joe Biden's and Mitch McConnell's USA. Our guest today is the Reverend Liz Theo Harris of the Poor People's Campaign. She's co-chair. And, you know, the Democratic Party establishment, you know, they want it to be same as it ever was. Oh, no, we can't look like we're too far left. We have to look more like oh, we're just less crazy than Trump. Republicans. What's the, that's their perception, and they're going to push for that against people like the squad, which actually went from four to eight, you know, people were real, uh, as as my people say, chutzpah, you know, some some courage, uh, standing up for things. How did candidates who came out for Medicare for all, which the Democratic establishment fears, how did those candidates do and and about the results of where a $15 minimum wage was actually on the ballot, you know, to smash through this false narrative that, uh, oh, we have to hew to the middle, the safe middle. What's the reality? Yeah. I mean, again, the, the, the reality here is that, um, that everywhere, every single race where someone was running with Medicare for all as a part of their platform, mm-hmm. every one of those candidates, um, and those weren't just in big cities and those weren't just in uncontested races. Every one of those candidates has won, right? Uh, 70% of people in this country say that they believe that the government has a responsibility to provide health care for the people. Mm. Um, uh, that 70%, right? And that's wow. 60% of Republicans say that. Right. Like I forget if it's 62 or 63, but it's a, it's, it's the majority. It's not, uh, it's not even a little bit of a majority. It's the majority. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet we have, we have political consultants telling <laughs> us that we have to be cautious about this. Um, 
the people have spoken. The people are very clear. And same with living wages, right? Again, in Florida, you know, what beat Trump and Biden was was living wages. Yes. Um, and other places where it gets onto to ballot measures, people vote, you know, in very large numbers for living wages. Um, and 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 the uh, the issues continue. Um, you know, it it it's oh, yeah. it's that people want you know um, to address systemic racism. People want yes. a fair taxation system. People want um, and are voting for all of those things. Uh, um, and and so so it's clear what the mandate of this election is. And it is and and there's no compromising. Um, or cooperating with compromise because it's it's clear that what people need and what people want and what people have voted for is um, not just um, in Joe Biden but in these down ticket ballot races ha- is 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 social programs that mm-hmm. lift from the bottom um, is healthcare and wages and and welfare programs um, and, and and we will you know face a lot more hardship and suffering if, uh, you know, folks get consulted into yeah. the idea that we, we, uh, don't, that, that the people of this country don't want and don't need these things. The fact that, that in a public health crisis, the worst of at least a hundred years, there has been no expansion of healthcare. Um, that is, is is not just wrong it's it's evil it's what our our sacred texts and traditions call evil right and, and um, I, I think you have the wherewithal to solve a problem and you don't <laughs> you just benefit the the wealthy right that that's that's not that's not moral policy that's not good economics um that's that's just wrong and and we have to say it that, that way and we have to build the power to make it um change. And I think, personally, I think it's not only immoral, but it's dumb economics. It, I mean, just mm-hmm. forgetting any morality of it, it's just dumb. It doesn't help mm-hmm. the overall economy. And we have unemployment now that's higher than it's been since the Great Depression. And back then, President Roosevelt commissioned unemployed writers using federal money to go out and take the pulse of America. The result was the American Guide series produced by the Federal Writers Project, which I love. They, along with the post office murals, also commissioned by the FDR administration, were meant to show what many corners of America were, revealing the nature of distinct communities. You have traveled the country from the state of Washington to Alabama and all over with the goal of building a movement to end poverty. What, please share with listeners some of what you found in those travels. Yeah, I mean, definitely what what we have seen from like the hood to the holler, as they say in Kentucky, <laughs> from the Carolinas to the California coast um, is a, a fusion movement, a, a movement yes. of diverse people um, coming together across issue, across race, across geography, across religion, um, across, you know, political division. Um, into uh, a, a movement that is that is saying, you know, for one military contract, um, uh, if that money were spent on healthcare, we could have expanded Medicaid in 14 states. You know, uh, for 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 every dollar 
Uh, we invest in early childhood education programs. We save $7 in the future, right? And, and what people are saying, you know, from, from families on the U.S.-Mexico border who have to, mm. uh, have been separated from their families yeah. to, to, again, folks in the Mississippi Delta who, um, have, have lost literally, you know, dozens of family members in this public health care crisis to, to the folks in Lowndes County, Alabama, um, right between Selma and Montgomery, you know, the mm. kind of birthplace of the Black Panther Party, where folks still have raw sewage in their yards in 2020, um, uh, to, to, to folks on Appalachia, Apache sacred land out in Oak Flat um, uh, in Arizona. Uh, where copper mining companies are are literally drilling the most sacred land mm. um, of the Apache people. It, it's like the equivalent to to um, mining Mount Sinai um, mm. is is what's happening um, mm. in in Arizona as we speak. Um, and 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 there is deep suffering. There is deep hurt. Um, and. And you can only heal from that kind of suffering if you acknowledge it, if you understand it, and if people come together um, to show that it doesn't have to be this way. And and that's what people are doing. Um, and sometimes you hear about it on the news, but mostly, um, right. mostly we're just kind of distracted by whatever the the latest antics <laughs> are by 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 our tweeter in chief, right? Yeah. Um, and and in even in this political election. Um, we, we, we haven't heard and seen the reality of how people are living and not living, um, in, in this, in this rich nation. And, um, but when I spend time, you know, in Harlan County, Kentucky, or in El Paso, Texas, or in Altoona, Pennsylvania, I, I'm filled with great hope. Um, not because things aren't hard, not because things are, mm-hmm. are working out for people, but because, Despite all of the odds, despite you know all of the the death and the hardship and the lost wages, um, despite the the deep homelessness that that is happening not just in urban centers but in rural areas as well, um, that 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 people are not uh, giving in um, and and not succumbing to to just this death that that hmm. this society has gotten really accustomed to um but are saying um you know we can build you know powerful unlikely alliances um mm. and we can organize um and we can and we can you know uh, uh build a better life for for our children and for our whole community and we can lead the way not just you know uh you know other farm workers or other low wage workers or other people without healthcare, but we can, we can show solutions that will lift everybody up, um, that will help the whole society, um, and, and make us, uh, uh, you know, a, a stronger and better democracy. Yeah, redefining national security. A whole bunch of weapon systems that don't do anything. That ain't national security. Building the economy, I think, from the ground up. Personally, I think that's that's real national security. And one thing that, you know, not everybody, people say, they oh, they're so busy, they don't have time to participate in politics. And I, I kind of believe that. But once you do, once you get involved in these things, it's fun. It really is fun. It's it, the sense of, hey, we're not invisible. Because keeping it invisible is the only way that you can maintain this unjust system. 
And going back a little bit to my favorite president, FDR, at the behest of his wonderful wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, I'm sure you know this story. A. Philip Randolph, who led the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, uh, the first predominantly African-American labor union, was invited to the White House to express his concerns to the president about the unequal treatment accorded to members of his union. Great, you know, in the 1930s, there was you know, tremendous discrimination and unfairness. After listening to Randolph's problems and solutions, FDR replied, most constituents always come with grievances, but in order to get them resolved, they made me do it. Therefore, you have to go out and make me do it. Following that meeting, Randolph proposed the first big rally to be held in Washington. It, it, just the threat of such street pressure had some effect. What did FDR mean, and how relevant is that today? How important is it for people to get out there and make them do it? So, I mean, what we're what we're finding indeed is that um, in the words of a Cypher 15 member out of uh, Appalachian, Virginia, our backs are against the wall and all we can do is push. And I think that, that what we're seeing um, right now is that people are being compelled to organize, to 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 push back, to to make um, the powers that be um, do it right. You know, one of my favorite quotes of, of, of Dr. King um is that power for poor people will really mean having the ability, um, the aggressiveness, the assertiveness, and the togetherness to make the power structures of the nation say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. Yeah. Right. So it's it's it, it's the same it's the same thing. Right now we we have politicians um, on both sides of the aisle that yes. are saying no, 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 uh, right? Um, right? No to expanding health care. Right. No to, um, you know, investing in, in living wages. No to really expanding voting rights. No to, um, you know, starting welfare programs that actually lift um, people out of poverty. Um, and, and, and the, 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 the kind of what has to happen today um is for for people who who have nothing to lose um, to come together with people from all walks of life and 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 make uh, make them say yes um, make them do what you know again is is what's necessary and what is possible um, and again this is this is this is what has always happened in history yes. you know yes. um, always. Uh, you know, Richard Nixon had a, a more progressive take on a guaranteed adequate income, uh, not because he, you know, loved strong welfare programs, um, but because the the people of the nation um, pushed and organized yes. and and made it so. And and it's and it is possible. Um, uh, it is, um, in fact, it is it is happening. Um, people uh, are organizing and are 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 going to hold, you know, the feet of, of every elected official to the fire to actually make that's good on, on what, uh, what has to be done. Exactly. That, that's got to be done. And uh, I've heard it said that there's nothing like adversity to organize people. So organizations like the National Welfare Rights Union and the National Union of the Homeless first grew in response to the neoliberal politics of President Reagan. And there's neoliberals on the Democratic side, too, unfortunately. I wonder if you could tell us about that, please. And as I recall, the Panthers, who, was referenced, who were referenced a little bit earlier, 
also organized for the welfare of communities, including food kitchens. And that made a difference. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so I think what what we what we see throughout history, I mean, definitely, I, I got involved in the National Union of the Homeless and organizing drive amongst, you know, tens of thousands of homeless people in the late 80s and early 90s. And, um, and it indeed was a response to the the mass evictions and the mass homelessness that was happening because of this, this politics of austerity and new liberal policies um, pushed, you know, by a changing economy and, and by uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, and, and similarly, um, you know, what, what we've seen in, for instance, Immokalee, Florida, uh, mm. uh, where, where farm workers um, have been being paid for, uh, you know, sub poverty wages for, for, for early decades is that in response to these kind of economic shifts and changes and the response to policies passed that, that, that hurt poor families, um, people, people organize. Um, sometimes at first, uh, it's, 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 uh, you know, reacts reactions, right. Um, you know, what the homeless union did that I was a part of back in the eighties and nineties was organized a housing takeover movement. Um, when homeless families get evicted, often people move back into the houses they've been evicted from because yeah. where else do people have to go? Um, what, what we did in the homeless union was, um, organize and politicize those, those housing takeovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, be able to win significant gains, um, the right of homeless people to vote, but also, um, the fact that that housing and urban development had to start setting aside um, housing, um, federal housing for homeless people um, had to, to, you know, um, start programs uh, that were about housing first um, and not just um, putting people on waiting lists, um, you know, to, to wait half their lives for, for housing sure. um, when there were all of these resources. And so, um, you know, what, what, People are indeed compelled, and and what we've seen in this pandemic, I think, is is, is all kinds of responses. You know, the the moratoriums um, on eviction, on utility shutoffs, right, right. Um, on uh, those those have been mainly kind of spontaneous um, movements of people. Uh, not that there aren't powerful organizations out there also, you know, saying that this has to be done, but but in most of the towns and cities where they were first passed, it was because people compelled to yes. organize yep. and, 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 and said, we, we have, to, you know, and folks went on rent strikes and, and, and are still on rent strikes now because, you know, if, if people aren't, aren't getting any stimulus and are, 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 um, have lost jobs because of this pandemic, uh, how are people supposed to be able to, to pay rent? Um, and, and can't we bail the people out and not just the banks? Right. Um, oh, and so I think that's, that's why there's, there's this these calls for for rent forgiveness and for debt forgiveness and and again so much of the most bold out work out there and, and policy calls out there are because people are 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 being compelled to do this and um, and I think uh, what what we know is that that this will only continue um, this will only intensify as as conditions intensify and and that's yes. why also the poor people's campaign and and the Cairo Center um, uh, that I direct, you know, has this bold set of policy prescriptions out there because they, they come out of these struggles. They come out of people being compelled to organize mm-hmm. um, and their solutions, not just for the immediate, but for, for the long term. 
um, and, and, and they can be done. And we, we show even where we can find the money to do it, you know, through a fair taxation system, through cuts to our military budget and to, to investing in, uh, in healthcare, investing in living wages, knowing that that will actually pay off, um, and, and pay off, um, you know, in, in really big ways. One thing I've never understood is when people say, oh, run government like a business. Well, you, if, if you invest prudently and carefully, yeah, it does pay off. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about here. It just makes good economic sense. And the, the World Bank and uh, International Monetary Fund, they have uh, had debt forgiveness in the past, not because they're nice people, but because it's just good economics. It pays off. And, and you write, there are already those in the media and politics who are counseling restraint and a return to the pre-Trump days as if he were the cause, not the consequence, of a nation desperately divided. That would be nothing less than a disaster. Why do you say that? What do you mean? I think it goes back to, you know, some of what we were talking about earlier, um, that, that any nation that has 140 million people who are poor, low income, and, and that existed before Trump. We, we need to be honest about that. Um, yes. Can't just go back to, um, uh, to, to normal. Can't just go back to how things were. Um, and in fact, the election of Trump in 2016 and, and, and the race this in 2020, like really are more of a symptoms of a larger yes. disease. Yes. And that disease is inequality. That disease is austerity. That disease is, deeming some people deserving and others undeserving. And that disease is saying that societies and governments have no responsibility to take care of the needs of the people. Um, and, and that just is not, is not true to our deepest constitutional values. It's not uh -huh. true and consistent with our deepest sacred and religious values. Um, instead, what we know is that when you organize society around the, lead, the needs of those that are most vulnerable, that, that everybody can benefit and that that's the role of society. That's the role of government. And, um, and so, so, you know, thank goodness people were able to come out in large number yes. and defeat a president that has openly fanned the fires of racism and division. Um, but, but, but we should not just be proud of the fact that he's not going to be in office as of January. Yeah. We, we have some, real healing um, to happen. And that healing is not just healing from Trump, that's healing from inequality, that's healing from poverty, that's healing from a history of racism. I mean, you know, Reverend Barber, my co-chair, often uh -huh. will say, Trump was not our first racist president. We don't understand history if we think that to be the case, right? Um, when have we really not had um, racists in office? Um, Especially when you understand racism as as uh, you know the fact that we can have disproportionate, hugely disproportionate numbers of people of color who are who are poor, who are unhoused, who are without health care, um, and so 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 let's not just think that everything is fine um, uh, when when Trump leaves the White House, um, but in fact we have a a, a lot of work to be done. Um, oh, absolutely, and, uh, and maybe and people have to do it. Maybe this is an opportunity now. And unless, you know, we have Georgia's special election coming up January 5th, unless they add two Democrats, which it's possible, given the organization that's happening down there, Stacey Abrams and others, a general stalemate seems likely between Biden and McConnell's Republicans. What can we learn from the past about what actually can break such stalemates? 
Well, I think there's a, a number of things that, that we have to look at. I mean, one is that Biden has the power to reverse the executive orders that Trump has put out that have been really hurtful and pass ones that, that the people need, right? Um, but also, I think we have to remember that when, when folks that have more regressive politics to them get an office, they use every means possible to pass the policies that they need. Um, and, and we need uh, for, for folks to be in there and, and using every means possible to, to pass what the people want. Again, yes. you know, Florida might have, have voted for Trump, but they voted for living wages. We need a minimum wage mm-hmm. raise mm-hmm. immediately, right? More than 70% of Americans, including 60 plus percent Republicans, believe that the government should provide health care for the people. It has yes. that responsibility. We need a, a universal single payer health care system. We need to expand Medicaid and we need a public um, health care system. And, 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 and nothing should get in the way of us of, of us getting that. Um, and 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 the people have again, you know, been very clear that that we um, we need to not just bail out the banks and not just forgive the debts of the rich. Um, we we need to to make sure that we pass um, you know programs that are not just temporary as well um, that really. Uh, you know, lift the load of, of poverty and inequality. And, um, and, and again, these are not partisan issues. These are, are issues of what's right. just at the moral center of our constitution and of our, our sacred texts. And, um, and it's what the people need and want and have been clear about. Um, and so, so we need uh, folks to govern that way as well. Self-government, doing what we actually want to be done. We do have the power. They've tried to convince us we don't have the power, but we do. Speaking of which, what can people do? People who are listening to this, you're involved in a whole bunch of different things. How can people best channel that energy if you know they want to connect with other people who feel the same way and want to make change? So we have the Poor People's Campaign organized in 43 states across the country. You can go to poorpeoplescampaign.org uh-huh. um, and find out what's happening in your local community. Um, the Cairo Center is one of the two anchor organizations, sponsoring organizations of the Poor People's Campaign. And we have a series of different resources and of activities and actions that we're taking on a regular basis. And so folks can also go to, poor, uh, to CairoCenter.org um, to sign up to, to get involved. Um, uh-huh. But, but mostly what, what I encourage people to do is that, that, you know, movements um, uh, begin with people um, taking action together. And, and that doesn't have to be in the streets. Um, that can be socially distanced. That can be yeah. online. But, uh, but we need people to connect and to organize. And we need to form permanently organized communities, as my brothers and sisters on the U.S.-Mexico border have, have taught us. And that means folks that are connected and capable and committed to a world that says no to poverty and racism mm-hmm. and climate chaos. And that turns our war economy into a peace economy. And, and so we need a lot of flowers to bloom in this moment. We need a lot of agitating and organizing. I hope that people, you know, will connect up. But if, if you have a cause that you're already involved in, keep on being committed to that because because we, we need it all. And it does work. And it's really, thank you so much for being with us and for the work that you do. And I hope people follow up on that. And Kairos is K-A-I-R-O-S. It's quite a moment in history now that we can possibly make some change. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Don't let- 